The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. This is episode number 53. We are officially into the second year of podcasting. Can we call it our second season? Yes. In fact, that's what I will do because I upload it to... Where do they ask me about season? I think it's in Libsyn, and it says which season is it. So now I can say season, season two. two, episode one. But it's but most podcasters will just keep keep you know, rolling cumulative. So I'm going to say this organized. is episode fifty three. So there Let, we go. Let's be organized. But and, that's amazing to think of what we've accomplished in the last year. Exactly, I agree. Uh, hey, hey, did you get a lot of um, feedback on last week's podcast? In, in when what, we met Amy Ronshausen and talked about marijuana, not not from my listeners over at the center. Why would you get? No, I, nothing. I just you said usually when you whenever you blog about marijuana, you get a lot of feedback. So well, I just didn't know if you'd gotten any feedback. It's on one the of podcast. those seriously emotionally charged. But that's what topics. I mean. And um, that, what happens is is <laughs> during that podcast, it's funny. It's like your reviews will come in a different medium. Like I do a blog about <laughs> marijuana on the website. I post it to Facebook. And then in the comments section, my fan club starts <laughs> writing about how correct and right on, spot on, and we agree with you. Actually, it's the opposite. I'm told I'm I'm ridiculous. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm a joke. I'm a, I'm a quack. I'm a this, I'm a that. And it's like, okay, guys. I'll, and people, you really find out how much people really love marijuana from a blog yes. in the comments. It's yeah. written so I can see it. It's there. Got it. With a with the podcast, the medium is a little bit different because <laughs> my online chat agent will get all the feedback. Ah. Because people that are listening to the podcast will then go to the website. Okay. And from and then there, up comes the little window. The little window comes up, and that's the first person they get to tell how much they completely disagree with what either you and I said. Well, and did they get some of that? Oh yeah. Oh, did, oh yeah. Uh, okay. I, now that I'm thinking about it, we did because <laughs> my online chat agent hates it when I do something really um, controversial. Yeah, I'd say controversial because they have to field all that. Yes. Because they get people that want to. Where's Jason Good? Can you get me in contact with him? I want to tell him. And then my online chat agent says, sure, here's his email address. I'm like, stop doing that. Because <laughs> then I get my inbox is full of people that just completely hate me. Um, but it's fine. You know what? We're causing a change. Exactly. We're, we're, we're affecting a change out there. And so, you know, if anything else, I want what we discussed to get people to start having some sort of conversation. Exactly. I don't care if people don't agree with us. Yeah, I don't either. Because there's a lot that don't. There are a lot of people who do agree with us. I want us just to all just have a conversation. I mean, what is a conversation? Both sides are agreeing about everything. It's it, not It's not it a chat. Work. It's yeah. not a two-way thing. It's like you have someone here has ideas, the other person over here has ideas, and it's like they might not line up, but you should talk about it. You can get in communication about it. That's exactly right. And then... Thus, we get understanding after a little while. Exactly. And so that's what maybe I want. Not, to- maybe not agreement, but it's, you know, it's okay. This is a subject that needs to come up and it needs to be discussed and it needs to be talked about, you know? And yeah. yes, we think we're right. And, and those who disagree with us, we don't think they're as right as we are. But there you go. That's, <laughs> they can start their own podcast. This is what I like to say is like, if you are like, and maybe there are uh, you know, there might be podcasts that are pro marijuana. Oh, so you could are. you could check. Well, then they but, should be listening to those. Maybe <laughs> we maybe, maybe we should be listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the whole thing. It's like 
we don't have to it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong we just need to talk about it we need to get it out in the open and just allow people out there to make the best decision for their own survival period exactly i mean if you love marijuana Love, I mean, love marijuana, just don't love it near me or near my family. And don't drive. Don't drive and or stuff Or operate like that. heavy machinery after you're smoking it. No, it's just, I, I, like, I think there's this feeling that each side is trying to get the other side persuaded over to agree with them, but it's like, we don't have to agree. It's mm. not a necessary thing. We just have to give the data. Right. We have to, and we have our opinions and others have their opinions and that's fine. Just here it is. You can choose, you want to turn left, you want to turn right. Yep. Um, I think it's a necessary conversation, just like interventions are a necessary conversation because I, a lot of families out there have this idea that's like, okay, so I'm not going to do an intervention because I'm not going to force my loved one into treatment because, I mean, how could that possibly work if they're not going on some sort of their own self-determinism? How are they going to get anything out of something they don't want? But since the family bottom lined them, they decided to go there instead of on the streets. And that's a necessary conversation that I have with families all the time. I'm a product of an intervention. Right. Well, either that, either they don't want to intervene because they don't want to somehow violate the self-determinism of the addict, which I'm sorry, I think sounds a little bit ridiculous, but that's okay. But, you know, either that or they don't know how. They don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. Now, statistically speaking, family interventions are less successful than like a professional intervention is because, you know, there's two things you could do. The family could sit down and have a conversation with the addict and kind of give them a bottom line and see how it goes. Or you could actually call in what I call the big guns and actually call in someone that's trained to do interventions that's also a neutral party. Right. That's like, I call them Switzerland. They're neutral. Yep. They're, uh, they're not emotionally involved in the situation. And that's the thing, because let's face it, you know, we all know, like, I know as the child of my parents, I could, I knew the exactly the right button to push to get the right reaction. Sure. And so if the intervention scenario is you know, parents and a child, the child knows exactly the right buttons to push. They've been pushing it as long as they've been there. And vice so, versa. And vice versa. And so it, it has the, it definitely has the capability of going the wrong way. It does. But we've got an interview today. I actually did it last week and I interviewed a professional interventionist. Mm-hmm. He's a professional. And the thing that was most interesting to me was he actually has an exact protocol, which... If he follows it, 90% of the time, it works exactly the way he lays it out. And he says, I think he says in there that when he doesn't is when it doesn't, it doesn't go well. Right. You know, but it, but part of it, and you'll hear this is getting the family on, on board. Right. So 90% of the time we're saying nine out of 10 addicts. I think so. Are going to go with him. I think that's what it said. I think that's what he said. All right. Yeah. I think he get, I think he gets a product. Anyway, so we'll listen to it. His name is Bobby Newman. Mm-hmm. He's a professional interventionist. I caught him driving through the middle of Kansas, and because it didn't sound very good on the Bluetooth, he actually had to f- hold the phone to his ear. So I, we were both hoping he didn't get arrested or stopped for holding the phone to his ear, because in some states you can't do that. Um, but we'll go ahead and play that interview. Yeah. Good. So today I am interviewing Bobby Newman. I'm very, very excited to talk to Bobby. Bobby is a professional interventionist. And we have spoken over and over again on the podcast about, you know, getting help 
for your loved one or your friend and getting them into treatment. But oftentimes, the addict doesn't want to do that. And we've talked about that many times. And so Bobby is a professional that you can actually call in to help you with that. So thank you for talking to us today, Bobby. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear, you know, things from your perspective, and hopefully you can share some stories with us without, you know, naming names. But I I looked up I looked you up. I looked at um, Steve. My husband had sent a link and it told a bit of your backstory. Tell us, how did you get started with drugs and alcohol? Well, I grew up in a small town in rural Oklahoma and lived. uh, Of course, well, it's a bit of a long story, but I, I... Grew up in a small town in Oklahoma where, you know, drugs were kind of like taboo or, you know, they weren't necessarily some things that people would do. There was a very small percentage of people that actually smoked marijuana or did anything else, or at least that I knew about anyway. But the majority of people drank. Mm-hmm. They drank alcohol, and that was socially acceptable. And I can remember, you know, I mean, even the first time I actually got drunk was at a, a rodeo where they had, like, just a big... I, uh, a tank of ice and with beer. And then of course they had pop and beer in there. And we would go in there as kids. I was like 12 or 13. I would go in there and act like I was getting a pop and I would get a beer and I drink like two beers. And of course that age, you're going to get, you know, drunk. And that was a, but you know, nobody really, it was kind of laughed off. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, uh, Bobby got into the beer. Right. And then it just progressed from there. And as I got, got on, I mean, I grew older, you know, you would, I would lived in the country and you would always hear on Monday mornings at school about the things that happened over the weekend. And so I was just I, at home and bored. And I was just like, I couldn't wait to be part of that. And I can remember when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, you know, being able to go to town. And we, my friends would go camping. And then it just, you know, and we would get somebody to buy us a beer. And I always swore that I never would smoke marijuana. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've never smoked weed. And, well, of course, you know, the beer, you know, you kind of go along there and, there's people out there that are doing it. I, I, well, I remember when I was at the beginning of my senior year in high school, I, first time I smoked marijuana. And then I, I, you know, I realized that I didn't appear to be, to be that bad, so I continued to do it. And, and then I got to where it was more and more often. And then pretty soon I was doing it during school hours. By the time I was at the end of my senior year, I was doing it during, during school hours, and it just got to be more and more of a habit. Mm-hmm. And then I go to uh, college, and... You know, we, of course, you know, there was a certain night of the week that all the college students would go out. And uh, I can remember one of the other football players. I was going to a small school in southern Oklahoma and playing football. And one of the other players came, had this pill, this prescription, you know, it was, a, it was a capsule. It was some sort of amphetamine. I'm not sure what it was. But he's like, man, try one of these. This will really, this will really make you feel good. So I tried one and it was just like I was instantly sober. Hmm. And I could stay up later and be drunk and, and you know and drink and then the next day I could you know take another one or I even got to where I was splitting them in half and, and it was like I could take you know that way I'd get some sleep and then I could wake up the next morning and take the other half and it just progressively now I'm drinking now I'm smoking weed and then I get introduced to to, to amphetamines and cocaine and it's just you know just kept going from there and and you know all the while I'm not really I don't really have any direction in life. I don't really know exactly what I want to do. 
and I'm just kind of going through the motions. I mean, I was still going to school. I made somewhat decent grades and actually stopped going to school and, because I, I realized I wasn't putting all the effort into it. I went to trade school, completed that. But then, you know, I just wasn't really doing well in life in general. So my substance, every time I would suffer a loss of any sort or a failed relationship or anything like that, I I just would, you know, substance abuse would get worse. And it just continually progressed until, you know, roll it back and I'm 35 years old. I'm looking at seven years in, in prison. Right. And I can't for possession and I can't stop using, you know, before when I was younger, I could, if I had a drug test coming, I could always stay clean long enough to pass the drug test. Mm-hmm. By the time I'm 35, I'm on probation and I'm in a lot of trouble and I can't stay clean. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when I was lucky enough to be able to go into a program and, and uh, get my life back. That was 18 years ago. Wow. So, <clears throat> That was how, that's how I got started. It just, it started out being fun and then it ended up being not so fun, not so fun at all. Right. And then how did you get into the work that you're doing now with the interventions that you do? Well, when I first completed a program, one of the things that I wanted to do was learn how to, you know, go out and talk to kids and I wanted to help other people. And and I I had the opportunity to do that. And then it just kind of Kindly through the progression of my career, uh, it just moved into interventions. And I, you know, people, you know, I was in a remote location. I was stationed in Hawaii for a while running a drug education program. And and people would call me and say, hey, we've got this family in Hawaii that needs help. And can you go and, uh, you know, help them? And, you know, before that, I, I had even been involved with the admissions process, but I hadn't really gone out and done, you know, an intervention. But I, I talked to some other interventionists and kind of got a good game plan and, and went out and, and, you know, just first started doing interventions probably 15 years ago. And, wow. and uh, it just kind of one thing led to another, and I happened to have a pretty good knack for it. And people would start calling me even when I was, you know, trying to go into other areas or do other things. People would say, hey, now you got to come back and help the family because we got to have you. Right. <laughs> and I just finally just, just you know, I, it, it's there's nothing more rewarding than to be able to go into the a chaotic situation such as, you know, this scenario that we all know is involved with drugs and alcohol and be able to help that family sort it out and get the love, you know, their, their family member into rehab and actually happy about it. Right. It's, it's like a night and day. And so there's, a, I have a real passion for that. I actually, if I could pay my bills, I would do it for nothing if I could. So I, I understand um, Now, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you run into when you go in to do an intervention? The biggest challenge is initially getting the family to confront the situation and follow through with the plan that you lay out before you actually do the intervention. Right. And there's a lot of, like, enlightenment and and basically you know, training or hatting that you give the family to get them to fully realize what's going on. I mean, and what they need to do, you know, they've been usually been trying and attempting to, you know, to help their loved one for, for, you know, many failed attempts. And so they get the idea that that's the way it's going to be when you do an intervention. They don't see the point in, in, in what 
why, what's this guy going to do that I haven't already done? Right. And time and time again, it's, you know, once you sit down with them, you go, okay, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And, you know, they'll, some people, and it's usually the biggest challenge is getting the family to operate together as a unit. Yeah. You know, I can, and, you know, I can, I was going to, I almost kind of knew the answer when I asked you because that makes total sense to me. You know, um, my co-host is Jason Good, and I think you know Jason, and I I interviewed his parents, and his dad knew pretty much from the get-go that Jason was an addict, but Jason's mom just couldn't confront that and enabled him for quite a while until they found a support group, and the support group said, you know, until you stop enabling him... And of course, you know, we all know enabling is when you let them live at home, you you give them money and you know, mm-hmm. you don't take you don't take the right action to actually get them treatment and so it wasn't until his parents found a group like that that they were able to get help because I you know, we've talked about this over and over again. It's like it's not easy for a family, especially a parent, to admit that this has happened to their child, do you know? So I can right, see where right. that would be a really difficult thing and that you you don't the whole idea of an intervention doesn't just mean you're going to talk and work with the addict cuz you you have to handle probably certain family members. Some are probably with you and some aren't. I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. And then you've also, you know, when a person is not doing well, there's obviously some negative influence in their life, although they're responsible for their condition and and getting it straightened out. There's obviously some negative person or influence in their life. And sometimes it's inadvertently and sometimes it's not on purpose. Uh, But you have to kind of look for that and understand that and, and be able to work around that. Uh, the other thing is, is you're, you know, you're, the situation you described, it can be reversed. Most of the time it's the mom, but sometimes it could be the dad. And, and you know, their, their, their family member comes to them for help. And, you know, of course they, you know, they probably gave them a very loving home and, and, you know, they, it's hard for, I've even had parents tell me, well, why do you think he's an addict? I mean, do you, you know, it's almost like they don't even, like you said, they don't even want to admit that their kid, be addicted to drugs right. because they just you know they've had three other kids that turned out just fine and this this one here yeah. you know is now using drugs and and uh, so they have to understand that they're what they they immediately have to change what they're doing in order to change the situation right and uh, and so once you can do that then you now are past the first hurdle <laughs> and getting, the person, getting them some help so right. Right. Do, do you have sort of like, I mean, I know every situation is somewhat different, but then somewhat similar. Do you have like a certain protocol that you use when you go into a family to do um, an intervention? Yeah, I do. I actually have, you know, I'm going to get, you know, all the people that are going to be influential in the in the person's life and I'm going to get any possible. I don't, I don't want there to be any loopholes or any possible means of of an out for the person. In other words, if there's a you know a, a mom or a grandmother or a girlfriend or whomever that might be an escape route for this person. Right. I'm going to do my best to handle that person, get them all on board with this, and so they fully understand what we're doing before 
we approach the individual. And then I'm going to describe that there's basically three phases to the intervention. The first phase is we're all going to write letters. You know, this is completely planned out to where, you know, we're going to time it to where, you know, if the person has to get on an airplane, we're going to be there three or four hours before the planes leave. You know, we're going to have a multitude of flights. We're going to have them planned out. We're going to have bags packed. We're going to have every objection that the person could possibly come up with. Uh, basically, handle. we're going to have it out on the, you know, we're going to address it. We're going to handle it. We're going to have a solution for it. Um, then we're going to have, um, you know, do, and we, we set out in the first, and then we're going to write letters to the person. The reason for that is because you want to control the approach completely. And if you're just sitting down trying to talk to the person, the you know, it gets emotional. People lose track of thought. The person, the addict may, you know, usually wants to argue or interrupt. Yeah. You know, so you have the opportunity to read the letter to them and you've got it composed. You've had a, a you know, specifically designed letter that will hit the high points concerning the relationship with the, you know, the, per, the family member has with the addict. And then if the person, if the addict does interrupt, then we'll just politely ask them, just, you know, let them finish. They've had a chance. You know, they've really put a lot of thought into this. Give them a chance to speak, and then you can speak later. Yeah. And then, you know, it goes around until, you know, for me, I like the, the person that has the most emotional impact to speak last. Right. That makes sense. And, and oftentimes, right, right. And then oftentimes, the person themselves won't even want to read They say, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. No, it's very, very important. Or the addict will say, oh, it's okay. We don't need to do this. We don't need to do this. <laughs> and I'll say, no, we need to finish. Because I don't, you know, it's really having an effect on them, right? Right. And um, and then as soon as we're done, the last person, we ask them, okay, so, and I will then tell them, but we're, you know, obviously we're here. We have a program picked out. Um, and we know that, you know, we'll, having a little background on the person will have identified that they've reached for help or there was something in their life that they wanted to handle. Uh, you know, and they'll then we'll then ask them, and, and the biggest percentage of people will say yes at that point, right? Because when their family is pouring their heart out to them, and they, you really tug on their heartstrings, you let them know how much you care about them. But then after a minute, if it if it's kind of you know after it could be a minute, it could be you know an hour, it could be three hours or many hours later, but you kind of get to the point where you're not getting commit a commitment out of the person, and it's kind of going around in circles, and at some point you would ask the family, is there anything else that you want to tell your loved ones? And that's where we enter into phase two, and that's where we've already predetermined bottom lines of consequences to their saying no. Now, obviously, you can't force somebody into treatment. Right. But you can. the family doesn't have to be forced to support their habit anymore either, and that's what happens is they're forced into the situation that they don't want to be in. Right. So and that's a that's a really good point. Explain. I like that. I like that. Yeah, that, it's a really good point. Sorry, go ahead. All right. No, no, that's okay. And it's like you know, and that's where you kind of flip it around and give them a different viewpoint. You know, you're not, you know, you're not forcing. You don't have to go. They don't, they don't have to go, but you don't have to allow them to live in your home and feed them and clothe them anymore either. Right. So that's the decision they have to make before you ever go in and approach the person because you're gonna. You're going to mock this up the worst possible scenario, and you're going to plan for every possible scenario that could happen, all the way down to the very, very worst one before you ever go in. That way, you're not caught flat-footed. And if you go into phase two, you know, uh, then you have to be ready to back it up. You can't put anything out there that you're not willing to do. And right. if you're not willing to truly do whatever it takes, 
then you're not willing to truly handle the problem. Right. Because if you have your loved ones sitting down, the people that mean the most to you, asking you and begging you and pouring their hearts out to you, to you to, to, for you to get help, and you don't submit to that, then there's a huge, you know, one of the things I explained to the family, you now will see how big this problem actually is. Right. This is, and so then we have to be bigger than that. We have to be willing to, you know, I'll give you an example. Just the other day, I was in Arkansas, and there was a family that, you know, the kid was a very, very nice family, uh, you know, got the kid over there. He didn't know I was there. They set him down. I walk in, introduce myself, and, you know, I said the family, you know, told him who I was, and I said the family's very concerned about his well-being, and they had something they wanted to say to him. And so they pulled out the letters. Well, he immediately jumps up and is not going to have any of it. And, you know, he wants to go out the door. And mm -hmm. I went over and stood in front of the door. And I said, man, you really need to listen to your family. And he threatened me. And I said, look, I, you know, I don't want you to, um, uh, I don't want you to, uh, you know, I don't want this to happen. You don't need to do any of that. But I'm not, you know, you really need to sit down and to listen to your family. They have something they want to say. Well, he goes out the back door, he jumps in his car, and he was drinking. He was very drunk. And the family had already decided if he does that, they're going to call the police because they didn't want to be responsible if he goes down the road to kill somebody. Right. You know, they wouldn't have wanted that happen to their, their you know, their family, so they were going to, so they called the police. Uh-huh. When the police come, we took a picture of the police car in the driveway, and we sent it to him, And he got Basically, well, they left, and then he comes back by the house blaring his horn, and they just left, so they were right around the corner. We call him again, and they pull him over and took him to jail. Of course, he was over twice double over the limit for drinking and driving. That's how intoxicated he was. Right. And um, so he spent the night in jail. The next day he gets out. They let him out because it was a municipal charge. He had no money. His car was impounded. His phone was impounded. He didn't have money to pay the rent. And he calls his family for help, and they said, are you ready to get some help now? And he I went and picked him up the next morning and took him into the facility. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, yep. Know, yep. That, that, that's what it took. You know, yeah. Basically, they did whatever. You know, That's my point. It was kind of a long story, but that's what it took. They were had already made up their mind. They're going to do whatever they need to. And, and you know what? When the kid got there, he was happy to be there. Yep. Yep. Wow. That's quite a story. Mm -hmm. Have I'm sorry if I put you on the spot when I say this, but are there are there any that you go through everything you can do and it you can't get them into treatment? Does that happen sometimes? It it does happen, you know. And I mean, you really kind of like I had a kid in New Jersey way last year, and you know we. You know, one of the things about it is just having a specific protocol to do the intervention. And the family was a little bit, you know, this girl was trying to do the intervention by herself. And her mother was stricken with cancer. She didn't want to bother her mother with it. And, you know, I normally would have tried to involve the mother uh, to a degree, but I kind of understood why she didn't. But want to involve her, but it turns out that had we done it standardly, we put, we would have had a much better chance. But the kid actually said no. He didn't want it, and he moved out of the house, and his mother was going through chemotherapy, and he had cancer, and all kinds of problems. There was all kinds of things that needed to happen at home, and he walked off and moved in with a bunch of drug addicts, 
and basically said, you know, no, I'm not going to get help, and I don't want anything more to do with you guys. Wow. And so, you know, not only did he walk away and continue his habit, but he also walked away from his mother and his sister, who lived alone in the house, with his mother with cancer. The, you know, the father had died years ago, and there was nobody that, you know, do the things around the house that, you know, would need to be done. Plumbing leaks and, right. and things like that, you know. Wow. So that was, you know, so you, it really kind of tells you where you're at and where the mentality of the person is, but it also lets you know what you're actually contributing to when you when you have somebody living in your house like that. Right. You know? And and I guess in retrospect, you know, there's always the the thought probably that if you had included the mother, would things have gone differently? Maybe, maybe not, but yeah. But you under yeah. Well, you know, in any any case like that, I mean, I'm sure most people do this, but I always go back and look and go, okay, what could I have done differently? Right. You got a better result. Right. You know, and and, and, it, and it's it's you know ninety percent of the, ninety to ninety five percent of the time when these things are done standardly, they they work. Right. So. Right. Well, that's a pretty good percentage. But, it, it worked, you know, and the, well, the truth is, is that nobody really wants to live the way they're living. It, you know, and, they're not happy and they're looking for a way out. Exactly. Um, and you give them and, a way and, out you know, that makes it maybe somewhat easy for them to admit that they're wrong or easier than it would be. Yeah, you know, one of the things I even tell the family is, is that, you know, don't let's don't make it about drugs and alcohol necessarily. Obviously, there's a drug and alcohol problem, but... To them, it could be something else. Right. To them, it could be loneliness or boredom or just despair, lack of self-esteem. I don't know how to get along with others. Right. Um, yeah, I had one kid tell me in Hawaii, he said, I I, you know, I don't have an out-drug problem. I said, oh, okay, well, all right, well, obviously things aren't going well, right? And he goes, no, they suck. And I said, well, what do you think the problem is? He said, I hate people. Oh. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I completely understand that. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that I don't really like either. But unfortunately, we got to learn to deal with them because they're not going away. Right. And he, and he said, well, how can you help me with that? And I explained the particular program that, you know, that actually Jason is involved with and did. Mm-hmm. They have parts of the program that help, uh, you know, a person deal with those type of things. And I explained that to him. And he was like, he actually got very excited about it. He said, you can help me with that. I'm all in. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting because, you know, we say this over again. Another thing on the podcast, we say over and over again that drugs aren't the problem. Drugs are the solution. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. just an example of getting to what was the real problem that, you know, the guy had. And I think I think that's I think that's really key because especially with that particular fellow, because that's what ultimately led him to treatment. I think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, you serve yeah. you you serve an extremely valuable purpose. You know, I I would love it if we could get rid of the addiction problem and get have you find another line of work. But I think that right now what you do is super valuable. Now, if anybody's listening um, that needs intervention, how do they go about finding you, Bobby? They can go to my website at newmaninterventions.com, which is N-E-W-M-A-N, interventions with an S, dot com. Or they can call me at 
989-489-4499. That's perfect. Because I know that we, well, we have well over 13,000 downloads on this podcast. And I know that there are people who are probably pulling their hair out and don't exactly know where to turn. So... Today, we've been talking to Bobby Newman, and he is a professional interventionist, and he has an exact protocol for getting your loved one to ultimately agree to treatment. We all know they have to agree to treatment, and that's easier said than done. And he's got, he's got a protocol, and he can help you. Bobby, give your phone number one more time. 866-989-4499, and I'll be glad to answer any questions or help people however I can. Bobby, thank you so much for driving down the road with your phone to your ear. I'm glad you didn't get stopped and talking to us today because I think that you really fill a very a very valuable need um, in this problem that we have today with drug addiction. Thank you very much. You know, I wanted to say one, add one thing. Absolutely. You know, I would love to, uh, yeah, uh, I would love to find another line of work as well. But, <laughs> you know, I, I went to the prescription drug conference last week in Atlanta, spent four days up there. And, you know, there's a lot of like-minded people as to me, like, I, I don't believe my, my philosophy is that addiction, you know, whether you believe it's a disease or not a disease, I don't believe that you have to be an addict for the rest of your life. I believe, I, I know that I'm certainly not. Right. Um, and I definitely do not fall for the, you know, medic, what's being pushed is the medicated assisted treatment. And you have pharmaceutical companies that have created this problem. And actually there's a lot of them being sued by from false and misleading advertising and marketing practices, yet they are the same ones that are then providing the drugs that are supposed to be, quote-unquote, the answer to addiction. Absolutely. And you have people out there with vested interests that are, you know, um, promoting this, as, you know, and just basically telling people, you can't, you can't overcome addiction without being on some sort of medication. Right. I happen to know that's not true, yep. I, personally, and I see a lot of people doing it yep. all the time, and so... It really, so the truth is, is that there's a lot of folks out there that don't want people to get better. And that's sad. That's just like sad, but you are absolutely right. And that is not a conspiracy theory. That is flat out the truth. It is. I can, I can prove it. Yeah. (laughs) If somebody wants to argue that point, call me. I know. And, you know, we, we talk, and it's interesting that you bring this up because, you know, we talked about it last week on the podcast. And Jason is a perfect example as well. Jason is a former addict. Jason lives a drug free life. And we were getting some flack. I think it was on iTunes about, oh, methadone and suboxone, you know, the best thing since sliced bread saved my life. And my comment was, that's great. Can you stop taking it? Because our wish for you is to be drug free. Okay, not dependent on any drug to exist. And if you want to get mad at us for that, well, hey, go ahead. But, you know, we're never going to stop telling people that. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's, you know, it's true and we know it's true. You can live a drug free existence. You can. Well, you know, if, if, yeah, and, you know, if a person wants to live that way, so be it. But there's a lot of people that I talk to that don't. Right. And they don't want to be trapped. And they, they never, they didn't have full disclosure. They didn't realize that methadone and suboxone are actually much harder physically to get off of 
than heroin or other opiates. That's right. Uh, they didn't know any of that. And then, uh, you know, I talked to one poor guy that was on like 270 milligrams. Wow. And he was like, I never knew it. He said, I, there's no, I, I don't know how to get off this stuff. Yep. And he desperately wanted to. I knew a guy that wanted to get a job up in, uh, somewhere up in the Northwest, Montana or someplace like that. And he couldn't locate, this was the job, his dream job, and he didn't know it was not a methadone clinic close, so he couldn't go up there and get his dream job because there was not a methadone clinic. And I said, well, you're t- tired of being trapped. And he said, trapped? I said, well, yeah, I mean, on the methadone. And he said, oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe this has saved my life. And I'm sorry, I'm actually pulled over, and it's just, if you hear the, the train. Oh, yep. That decided they <laughs> need to blow, blow their horn. But um, the... Uh, uh, you know, and you know, he, he said, "You wouldn't the methadone have saved my life." I said, yeah, but I, I understand that it was a solution for you at one point. But you know, if you if you you know, and I I didn't want to argue with the man, but right. he, he couldn't see that he was restricted because he had was dependent upon the drugs. Right, right. And so anyway, I, I again, if a, if a person wants to go that route. You know what? I, I don't have time to try to convince them. I just know a lot of people fall into that trap and not realizing that's what they're doing. And that's the people I'm talking to. That's right. So That's right. Well, that, I'm glad you added that in. I think that's very important. And before I let you go, I just want you to say your phone number one more time because I want to make sure people get it. 866-989-4499. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bobby. I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today. You're very, very welcome, and I'll be, I'll, I'd love to come back sometime if I'm allowed. You have an open invitation. Thank you. Thank okay. You. you know, we are all about offering hope and help, and I think that's the thing I took away from, you know, Bobby's interview is that, you know, for people that need it, I mean, there's another resource there for help. Absolutely, and I think what he offers... It's a completely valuable service because there's so there. I'd say like a good half the people at Suncoast, at Narconon are there by you know are products of an intervention. I was right. a product of an intervention. Right. Um, if it hadn't been for an interventionist, my family never would have found Narconon. Um, and so I think it's a fantastic thing that he does because here's the thing: people will say they have to hit rock bottom. I want them to reach out and then we'll get them help. It's like look, an addict reaching out for help and saying, you know what, this is the most destructive thing that I'm doing and I need help stopping is a logical decision. You can't expect a lot of addicts to make logical choices because they're abusing drugs, which in of itself is not a logical thing. And when you're addicted to drugs, most things that you do are completely illogical to the casual or objective observer. And so reaching out for help is a logical decision that a lot of addicts aren't capable of making. So an interventionist is just a tool to allow them to make the best decision for them. Because when you're in, in you're when you're in it and you know you're wheeling and dealing and running and gunning. You have blinders on. You're so not here with the rest of us. You're like stuck in the past, stuck in the future, all over the place. Like, and you just know you need to get high. You need to get your fix. You need to do this. And that's all your focus is ever on. And that's why sometimes interventionist just goes, stop. And and just kind of puts pause on everything. And it's like, let's look at what's going on here. Right. And bring some order to the chaos. 
And so, you know, Bobby helps us with all of our interventions here at Narcan on Suncoast, and he he does a great job, and I would recommend him to absolutely anybody. So I, I hope that people listening out there, if they know of a family that needs an interventionist or their family themselves needs an interventionist, call Bobby. He's really good at what he does. He'll help you get them into treatment, save their lives, get them on the road to recovery, and handle the one of the biggest problems that family has, and that's their addicted loved one. Exactly. I'm betting that there is a very, very small percentage of addicts that might wake up one day and say, oh my goodness, I'm addicted and I need help. But I I think it's a very, very Small. small percentage. And I think if you have a loved one or a friend who's an addict, don't go on hoping that they're going to ask for help. And if you can't get them into treatment, then this is this is the this is an option, That's and if you go. and you can either call Bobby directly or you can always call Narconon. We give you the number at the end of the podcast, and you can call Narconon and you can get help. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We're gonna come, we're gonna talk next week, and next week is going to be an interesting interview. It's um, an actor, friend of mine, who did a short film, Mm -hmm. and it's called Son to Son, and it's about addiction. And I want to hear from him about, you know, what that, what that, story is and how it came about mm-hmm. and how he became interested in it so that'll that'll be an interesting perspective next week so we'll be back all right we'll talk to you then take care you have been listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of l ron hubbard 